everybody. Welcome back to Two Bye Guys. It is book season, the continuation of book season, and today we will be talking about one of my favorite new books of the past year that deals with queerness in the animal kingdom. This is a science episode, my favorite, uh, and I'm so, so excited to have my guest here today. I really have just devoured this book, and I love it so much, and it, I wish I had read it 20 years ago, but Obviously, that was impossible. Um, my guest today is Elliot Schrafer. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He has twice been a finalist for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, and he received a Stonewall honor for the best LGBTQIA plus teen book. His science writing has appeared in Discover, Sierra, USA Today, Nautilus, and the Washington Post magazine, and his book, Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality, published in 2022, is what we'll be talking about today. And it I love it so much. Uh, it received a Prince Honor from the American Library Association. It was named an essential read by Psychology Today. And it was named one of the top 10 teen books of 2022 from the New York Public Library. Elliot has an MA in Animal Studies from NYU, also where I have an MFA from NYU. He is also on the faculty of Fairleigh Dickinson and Hamline MFAs for creative writing, and he lives with his husband in New York City. Welcome, finally, to Two Bye Guys, Elliot Schrafer. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I did not know you were a fellow NYU master's grad, so yeah, what was yours in? I have a, an MFA in dramatic writing from NYU completed in 2009. Right. So I, I don't think we crossed over, did we? No, I just received my diploma today in animal studies. So I graduated oh my God. in 2023. Yeah. And I started in 2019. So it's uh, wow. it was like a very part-time master's, you know, sort of, I, I had a second job and I also was able to just write and um, I quit that other job and I figured I would have to do something else in my time. So I decided to get a master's. Originally, I thought I'd just do more writing, but it turned out I just played more PlayStation. So I realized I had to <laughs> do something extra <laughs> with my life. Uh, but animal studies is where this book came from because it's obviously all about animals and, and their sexualities. Yeah, it's fascinating. I didn't realize that that was like a later in life thing because it seems like you've been studying this forever with all the knowledge that's in that book. And uh, what timing? You got the diploma today. Congrats. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> okay. So I want to talk about that. I want to ask you about your writing career. And um, let me pose it to you this way, since this is what you say in your book. If you're willing to, and because I, I always start the podcast this way, uh, but now it'll be slightly different. If you're willing to discuss your identifications, how do you identify and how have those identities affected your writing and your career as a writer? Oh, yeah. That's amazing reversal here because that is I have six <laughs> Q&As in the book with various scientists. And that's one of the questions that I, I throw at them. And it's always really interesting to see their answers. Um, yeah. I am a white cisgender gay man is the way I identify. Although writing this book has made me really question the sort of binariness that I easily just slipped into by considering myself gay um, rather than some version of bisexual, which is what I've come to think most creatures are. Um, so I've been on a journey around that. But I still, I still identify as gay just for the ease of it, um, but it's definitely something I'm, um, I'm looking forward to that part of our conversation potentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we can just get into that right now because I, I, you know, I find that very fascinating. And my my co-host Alex, who isn't doesn't do the show anymore, I think had a similar sort of trajectory, although 
he doesn't use the label gay anymore. He, he prefers queer. But a lot of our listeners, I think, have identified as gay for a long time and maybe still do, but also are sort of noticing the 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 fluidity that might exist that they hadn't no, noticed before. So yeah, I mean, your book features like, it's called Queer Ducks, but it features a ton of bisexuality and fluidity. Were you surprised when you started researching this to find so much sexual fluidity in the animal kingdom? Yeah, you know, I had a long journey towards this book. I've always been really interested in animals. So and that's partly why I got this uh, animal studies degree. Um, and I was also interested in telling stories and figuring out ways to understand the world. Um, and, and, you know, I think for a long time, I thought that was going to be novels and fiction. And then I've increasingly seen that looking at the natural world can be really calming. Like um, there's a way in which we get sort of frantically in a little little tiny echo chamber if we just think about humans and just consider their their the way that they exist in the world and that there's something about nature and the sheer acceptance of nature and the the fact that there's no need to like self-identify when you're around non-human animals because they don't they don't really care about categories in the same way um, and that's something that when I when I talked to the scientists in the book it's something that really came up a lot was that they had these moments of peacefulness there was one especially one um, non-binary um, moose scientist who would talk about how when they were out in the field, like they would, they would relish these times um, that they could just be like up to their, up to their ankles in mud, just looking at the animals they're observing through binoculars and not really worrying about all this, like sort of the, the need to constantly self-identify, which a lot of us have you know mm-hmm. struggled with um, in, the, in the process of coming out. Um, so it's, it's been a big part of this, this journey around the animals. Yeah. I, I love that. I found it so interesting because I think like, and sometimes in my journey, I've like really wanted to identify myself forcefully and fully like to everyone. And then there's other times where I do think like, yeah, can't we all just exist? Do we need any of these labels? Can't we just like be doing what we want to do and who cares what you call it? And that's kind of what is happening in the animal kingdom. And we're, you know, all these observations without necessarily labeling it in the, in the book is really was really fascinating. Yeah. And when I was, you know, really a young person, really into animals, when I realized I was gay, which just for me was like the moment puberty hit, it was like almost like the day before I didn't have a sense of sexual attraction. And then the moment I did, it was just like, guys, guys, guys. Like I, I stole my brother's Rolling Stone <laughs> and just looked at the um, the men's underwear ads in it nonstop. <laughs> um, so it was this really moment. Like um, I know a lot of people have a very different journey towards their sexualities, but it was this like, really stark moment of realizing I was this thing that I had been, that had been reviled in my middle school. You know, it was like the, the very worst thing to be would be to be gay or bisexual or lesbian. Um, and it was, you know, I would easily partake of that lunchroom conversation just so that people wouldn't think that I was gay. You know, I would, I would sort of casually gay bash, you know, it's, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve and all of that. And I was just part of that culture in order to survive middle school myself. Uh, and then when I realized I was gay when I was 11, I went and I looked up homosexuality in the encyclopedia because I was like, as a nerdy kid, it was like the way to find out the answers I needed. And it really, on the natural side, it was very stark that it didn't occur in nature. Um, Everything that I saw, this is in 1990, 1991. And I really had said it was a psychological aberration that was unique to humans. Uh, And so I I really internalized that message, you know, that this is something Mm -hmm. that is, is humans only uh, have same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. 
And, you know, I came out on the other side of that, like I had enough support that I, I came to like really love that unnatural part of myself. I kind of consider it the sort of Oscar Wilde version of sexuality. Like, like natural things are boring. Like let's all be unnatural. Like that seems wonderful, uh-huh. right? Like it's a way to be unconventional and interesting. And, and that's how, that's the version I told myself in order to make it through. And I think, you know, there's some young people who internalize this feeling of deep wrongness, this and unnatural is something that gets attached to anti-sodomy legislations around the world, including the capital punish- punishment legislation that just passed in Uganda. And this like internalized message of something that is, like, you don't exist in nature and therefore there is something wrong with you uh, is really, really damaging. Uh, and so mm-hmm. when I came across this, there's this episode of this 2004 documentary called Animals Like Us. Uh, and it was had one episode on animal homosexuality. And I looked at it and watched it and it was, you know, kind of like a really budget documentary. Um, but it like opened my eyes to the fact that there's all this like homosexual behavior happening in animals, um, the animals almost across the board, across the animal kingdom, vertebrates, invertebrates, birds, fish, um, have these, all these bisexual behaviors, um, that it really opened my eyes. To, like I had been sold this poison pill, this, like this mm-hmm. version of existence that is really that there's something wrong with, with queerness. Uh, and that, that when I found out that wasn't true and I, I figured, oh, I'd have to really search to find examples. And instead it was the exact opposite. You know, the, the nature just did a study of studies and put together the total number and found 1500 different an, animal species and counting have significant same sex sexual behaviors in the wild. And so when I was writing Queer Ducks, it really became like, I had to like figure out like, how do I pare down? You know, <laughs> like uh, there's so yeah. many different animals. Like, yeah. so if I can't have a chapter on garter snakes, you know, I had to like mourn the fact that I couldn't talk about garter snake sexuality, which who, who, who huh. of your listeners has ever considered garter snake sex? Yeah. But it's really interesting. Wow. Now I want to know about that. <laughs> well, I can, I can um, tell you. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get to garter snakes in a minute and I want to dive into all of that too. Um, let me just ask, cause I'm curious. I, so you, have you've written a lot of fiction as well did you like how how long in the works was this and the transition to nonfiction, or or like how and when did you decide to do that yeah it was about uh two years uh, writing this book and it really coincided with the beginning of the pandemic so i started working on it in i think april 2020 and it was really my pandemic escape was i just like closed myself in a little room. I still have my NYU library access because I was in the animal studies program. And I just dived into research and just learned about all of these different animal species and how, how their sexualities operate. Uh, and so it was, it was a treat to actually not, when human society felt like it was about to crumble all around us, it was a treat to just think about non-human animals for a little bit uh, and put my mind elsewhere. Uh, it, was a, it was a relief. Yep. Absolutely. I think you're like the, the fourth person on this season, and myself included, who's new book that's coming out around, you know, last year, this year was a pandemic project. Uh, so, you know, silver lining of the pandemic, we got a lot more queer books out there because we had yeah. time to write them. Well, and publishing <laughs> is such a long lead time. It takes two hours, two years for books to come out that I'm really wondering, like, we're going to have a glut of books about contagion and pandemic uh, coming up right around now. So everyone should, should okay. watch out. I will brace myself for that. I'm not sure if I'm prepared for that. (laughs) I don't think I'm prepared either. (laughs) 
I love Zencaster. As you guys know, this podcast is part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Joining Zencaster has made this whole process so much easier from recording to production to distribution. Zencaster is great, it's all in one. And now it's even better with their new AI powered clipping tool to produce content on social media. So before I got access to this tool, I used to spend a while, every episode, looking through the video, the full video, finding clips, figuring out which clips were good, cutting them up myself, putting them through multiple different tools on other websites to add captions and to add a bump at the end that looked pretty, and then putting it through each social media network and adding a caption there, writing a caption myself. I was paying money subscribing to all those tools and it just took a lot of time and it really disrupted my workflow. But then along came Zencaster's AI clipping tool and it has made everything so much easier. And I am quite frankly, pretty impressed by what this AI can do in finding clips. AI is not powering the content of my episodes. That's all human, obviously. But to find clips for social media, it's kind of the perfect use for it. So far, this AI clipping tool has done a great job at finding good moments from the show and clipping it automatically. Leave the heavy lifting to AI as it generates titles, descriptions, and complete closed captions for your video clips. And you can effortlessly integrate and auto post your viral video clips across top platforms like Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. When the clip is ready, I click one button and it posts to four different social media networks that we advertise on. Are you ready to revolutionize your content creation? Click on my referral link in the show notes to this episode or use my code 2BYGUYS, T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S, to receive an exclusive 20% discount on your first month of any paid plan. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your content and engage your audience like never before. Let's dive into what you talked about and, and all this fluidity in the animal kingdom. Cause I, I mean, I was, I don't know that I noticed it as explicitly because I wasn't quite attuned to my queerness as early. I I think because I was somewhere more in the middle, I just repressed part of it and and explored the other part. And I didn't come out as bi until my early 30s. Um, But I I was a psychology major in college. I graduated in 07. And I specifically remember like a, a course called Human Sexuality. I think it was called Human Sexuality, even though we focused on animals a lot too. And it was essentially a course on evolution and taught me that, you know, the the survival of the fittest and only things that will help a, a, a creature reproduce or allow their offspring to reach reproductive age. Those are the things that will be naturally selected and will win and other other things will not. And everything was kind of viewed through that lens. So like. Why do you think evolution is more complicated than that framing, especially when it comes to sexuality? Yeah. Um, did you talk about bonobos in this psychology class? I feel like they're the they're they're the animal that breaks through a lot uh, for studying human you know, sexuality. I don't remember. I don't remember uh, now. And 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 I want to talk about those. And I quoted the bonobo chapter in my book of of your uh, book. So yay. they are fascinating. <laughs> but 
I, I don't remember. I, 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 the one thing I remember from that class, and then I'll let you talk, is the male nipple. And they were talking about how that's like a byproduct of evolution and it really serves no purpose. It's just there because it's less costly than differentiating the sexes and not having a nipple. But like, I don't know. I've, I've learned recently that my nipples are not useless. In fact, they <laughs> come in quite handy and uh, are quite sensitive. <laughs> well, and the same argument is done in the reverse about the female clitoris, right? That it's this um, proto penis, you know, that like would have developed if, if that person had been sexually male, uh, but just remains in a sort of vestigial state, which I don't think many women think about their clitoris in this way. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, the evolutionary argument is, is really interesting because I think it, it holds water. It sort of makes sense. If you haven't really looked at the science, it's a very reasonable argument to make that any behaviors that don't either produce more offspring or help you help the individual survive during its own generation, that those behaviors won't propagate. They won't spread because they're not, those genes aren't being, um, uh, aren't being introduced in the next generation in a greater quantity. And I think that's a reasonable argument to make. And I think one of the problems is we have this long legacy of human exceptionalism, this idea that humans are a unique creature, unlike animals, that we have, we have souls and internal lives and that animals don't. Uh, and this is something that was really bred deep into the scientific culture. Uh, and if you don't think about animals in any broad sense, then that Darwinian argument holds true. But that's assuming that animals, non-human animals, will only have sex to procreate. Whereas we know humans have a ton of motivations for having sex, right? And I think it's actually probably the minority of times is the goal to actually procreate uh, when two humans have sex. Uh, and yeah. otherwise, it's, you know, it's like... <laughs> Often that's the not the goal. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think the vast majority... Exactly. That. Like, let's avoid this avoid, thing Avoid that. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. <laughs> right. And so we'll, we'll have sex in order to feel close to someone else, in order to feel dominant or submissive, in order to like prove your status to someone else, like if, if you are close or not, um, that we have all sorts of motivations. Whereas we had thought of animals in a very, very um, simplistic way of thinking about the reasons they would have sex. But when you think about, you know, the, the benefits of sex, I mean, the basic one, especially for us mammals, is sex produces oxytocin, which is called the bonding hormone. Uh, and it, it makes you feel close to whoever you just had this physical contact with. Uh, and that has a huge social benefit, especially for creatures whose social lives are how they survive. So if you think about the bonobos, which I imagine we'll probably get a little bit deeper into, um, but bonobos, like if two females need to establish their alliance within the group, they can't really small talk, right? They can't sit down and have a conversation about it because they don't have speech, mm -hmm. but they can groom each other. They can rub their clitorises together uh, and to, to orgasm. And that will produce this really, really strong feeling of closeness and establish their union within the greater group. Uh, and one of the uh, primatologists I talked to, Christine Webb, makes this really great point about how, you know, we've had just one side of the story around animal sex, that we think of it as just this, this instinct to procreate, when actually like sex, all these other purposes of like expressing reconciliation of a way of feeling close, um, a way of uh, supporting one another within the group and proving that support. Like these are all also useful for survival. These are ways that animals will make themselves uh, survive their own lifetimes because they, we need each other, right? And this is one way of mm -hmm. becoming really close. Uh, it's actually probably our most powerful way of doing it. Uh, and so when you think about it that way, then all of a sudden it's not an evolutionary dead end, right? It's this behavior that will produce 
um, this, this social benefit within the group. Right. And it also like the argument for evolution and survival of the, fit- of the fittest doesn't disappear. It's just kind of rethinking all of these behaviors in, in the broader context of like, could these things actually be evolutionarily advantageous, even if when you look at it narrowly, it may not seem that way. And so you write a lot about the bisexual advantage, which I am thinking may be the title of this episode. But uh, can can you talk about like how fluidity, uh, in addition to the the bonding and social, you know, developing social ties, can be evolutionarily advantageous broadly? And then later we'll talk about specific animals. Yeah. Well, and I think our our blindness to same-sex sexual behavior and the essential bisexuality of the animal kingdom comes from what I talked about with the human exceptionalism, but also the bi-erasure that occurs within the academy as well. So exactly. if you think of creatures like humans, for example, as being either gay or straight, then you would be looking at animals and seeing them have same-sex sex and be like, oh, it's a gay animal. Um, and I think that assumption then fuels that evolutionary argument because if an animal is 100% exclusively gay, then they, they, they won't produce, be producing offspring in the next generation. So you do have that evolutionary like selfish gene explanation that says like this, this kind of behavior wouldn't propagate. Whereas if an animal is bisexual, can reap the benefits of sex with uh, other animals of the same sex or the opposite sex, then they are, they are mining all the social benefits and also uh, having offspring in the next generation because they're, they're having right. sex you know, with, with partners of, of both sexes. Right. Um, and so I think that is, that is where this bisexual advantage comes in because queerness in animals isn't that costly. Um, it is, you know, a moment of sex isn't, doesn't cost a lot of time that they could have been foraging and it produces these benefits, um, one of which can just be pleasure or it could be these social advantages. Uh, so bisexual advantage is this theory that basically shows like we've been assuming that animals were, were straight and that then they sort of evolved in these individual populations, a tendency towards uh, same-sex sexual behavior and, and bisexuality. Uh, and these scientists, these young scientists, which, you know, the increasing diversity of who gets to do science is really important here because these are a lot of queer scientists, uh, people coming from marginalized communities that are coming up with this theory, is that, that we're actually getting this backwards, that, that it's not like animals started straight and turned queer. It's that there is no really great evolutionary reason for animals to develop a, a prohibition against same-sex sexual behavior um, that way, way back in the tree of life, and we're talking about you know millions and millions and millions of years now, that animals didn't have sexes. Like simple animals, like they were all the one, one organism. And that once animal sexes evolved, they would then have to evolve some strong taboo against ever having sex with members of the same sex. And there's just not a great argument for why they would ever have that taboo. Because if the animals are bisexual, they're still having offspring and they're reaping all these other benefits um, from same-sex sex. So right. why would they ever stop having same-sex sex is basically their argument, which I think is very compelling. And also, Bisexual Advantage, I hope, is the title of this podcast episode. That's, that's <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I find all that so fascinating and it makes so much sense, both with like the research and also just with like the way I have felt about myself and my worldview of sexuality. And, and it really goes back to this class I took in college where like it, it was, it erased bisexuality pretty completely. Like I do not remember any discussion of that, you know, some animals or humans could be bisexual. And it really looked at 
homosexual animals as the the byproduct argument, the same as the male nipple. Like we don't really know, we can't really explain it, and it must just be this you know random differences that didn't get weeded out and and it exists. But but the reverse argument that you just made makes so much more sense and you know I, I doodle bugs are not on my list of topics to get to but you have a chapter about doodle bugs who just fuck everything that moves because that's just sort of the best strategy to like there's it's indiscriminate sexuality and like when you think about it why not because that's how that like that's how i felt for me is that it isn't a zero sum game like when i'm have attractions or experiences with one gender, it doesn't make me then not want to be with someone else. It, if anything, it can m- help me teach me about myself and what feels good and give me access to pleasure that then I want more of. And, and it's like a muscle that expands. So gives you lessons on your nipple journey. Right, exactly. <laughs> I learned that from men, but then, you know, I can take that back to being right, with women. Right. And so it's wonderful. the idea of uh, sexually fluid animals just makes so much sense. Um, I, I want you to respond to that, but also you mentioned, and I think it's so interesting about like who is doing this research. And so if you want to also talk about like how do the biases of human scientists reinforce heteronormativity? when studying animals and like, is that changing and how? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, on the topic of insects and arachnids, since we're, we're just on that, you're absolutely right that they will basically fuck anything that moves. So they are, they're really, really rapacious <laughs> sexually. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, basically the, the, when scientists try to come up with reasons for this behavior, they just think like, there'll be a cost. Like if they pass up a mating opportunity that actually could have had offspring, there would be a cost to it. So why do that? If you're a wolf spider, like why not just have sex with any wolf spider you come across um, in case, because that way you might have offspring. And if not, then you just had sex and that's fine. It's, it's, you move on with your day. Um, like, like what is the cost here? Like they're not worried about like facing their sense of shame or, you know, having to redefine who they are. Like it's just, you know, they're just, just having, having sex where they can. Um, which I think is yeah. really interesting, but it's a very different reason for why essential bisexuality exists in mammals and birds. Um, so it's, there's no one theory about homosexual behavior in, in animals. It's, it's different uh, depending on the animal. And I think, you know, one of the ways in which this bio erasure and the scientific assumptions around the way animals work came out was in, in fruit flies. Just to cap off our insect segment, but fruit flies, you know, there's, in, especially in the nineties, there was article after article finding like a gay gene uh, in animals. Like it was something that, that science was really concerned about um, because if you found a gay gene, then it would change the way that we would treat um, LGBT people in, in human cultures, right? That you could finally prove it's not a choice, that it's something biological. And if you can't find a gay gene, then, then the, the conservatives could have the argument, they're like, oh, it is a choice after all. And they're just, you know, these humans that are making these sort of weird decisions. Um, and so there was such an, a vested interest in finding a gay gene and fruit flies were the main target for it. Uh, and this was in the mid nineties and scientists did claim to have found a gay gene in fruit flies. Uh, and what they did is they modified um, a sequence of, of, of amino acid pairs in the DNA of these fruit flies. And then all of a sudden these male fruit flies would have sex with each other. Uh, and they had this video of these fruit flies in the Petri dish of, you know, just this long chain of fruit flies having sex uh, in, in this 
dish and they're all they're all males um and so it was you know it was on the cover of time and newsweek and everyone was saying like a gay gene has been found and Meanwhile, it was just really sloppy science. Um, first of all, they called this gene in question fruitless, which I thought was a really shitty name for a, a, a gene that encourages yeah. homosexual behavior. But anyway, this is the, the 90s. Um, but they, uh -huh. what the scientists had done is basically just take away the fruit flies' um, tendency to discriminate the sex of other fruit flies. And so what these fruit flies were was bisexual. And just by putting a bunch of male fruit flies only within the same group, the males were all having sex with each other, but they hadn't turned them gay. Uh, but this idea that just skipping right over the fact that they really had created these bisexual fruit flies, like skipping over that fact and like just calling them gay uh, in, this, in this sloppy way was, I thought, really telling about the way that our culture approaches sexualities and thinks about sexualities, that we have this lionizing of straight and gay identities and then this habitual just ignorance of or even consideration of uh, bisexual identities. Uh, and that, was, that came out mm -hmm. really strongly in these fruit flies. Well, and actually that, that, that topic is on my list for later, but let me just ask you this now, because I, that, I thought that was fascinating. And then you wrote that the, uh, I forget if it was the fruit fly study or something else, but you wrote that the New York times concluded eventually that 50 to 60% of sexual orientation might be genetic, uh, essentially as, as inconclusive a result in either direction as you could imagine. And you wrote that you really like that as the answer that it's inconclusive why do you like that result yeah yeah i mean there's there's interesting arguments on, on both sides about whether you would want it like what if it was 100 genetic you know your sexuality was encoded in your genes and so we could actually do a dna test like 23andme could actually tell you like oh like you're bi and here's here's the gene pairs that show it and like so it's a confirmation of who you are there's all sorts of really positive consequences we could imagine about that if we're as queer people, you know, that you could then really say to your uncle at Thanksgiving, like, it's not, it's not a freaking choice. Like, here's like my 23andMe results. Like it says that I am, you know, 60% bisexual or 20% bisexual, whatever it is, whatever the, however the science would work. Uh -huh. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah. But then you could have this, like, you, you could make this clear argument, especially to conservatives that, um, that this is something that, that, is needs to be respected and within our, our legislation and the way that we think about people. But on the flip side, then you would have this capacity to have this proof um, that feels like of the absolute 100% pure science, this proof that someone is gay or bisexual or lesbian, and that you could imagine what that would do in the, in the wrong hands, um, that you could you know picture someone running for president and saying like, we need to rally rallied together against this like scourge of queer people. And now we have a database where we know exactly who they are. Um, and we've all been blithely like spitting into tubes and sending it to places like 23andMe, which still keeps this genetic information, right? And so they would be able mm -hmm. to say, this is incontrovertible. It is, it is absolutely true. And if we want to eradicate this menace, then they have, they have this quote, scientific proof of it. So it's both, it, it could be a, a, a a blessing and it could be a curse. And I think this idea of there being only 50 to 60% uh, genetic correlation sexuality and that the rest might be cultural um, is actually a great mix because it's there is a genetic component, but it's not the only thing and that there's something else going on, um, which I think keeps us in this middle ground safe, uh, middle ground space, which is the safest place for queer people to be as far as their greater culture. Yeah, I I like that. The, the the fifty to sixty percent might be genetic. It's like 
it is kind of the perfectly complicated, you know, interplay of nature and nurture. And it's uh, in addition to the, the safe zone reason that you talked about, like, uh, I just kind of like that it's a little bit unquantifiable and undefinable. And that's that's what it should be because it's so complicated and complex and it works so differently, as you said, in many different animal species for different reasons, for other different purposes. And so, yeah, it's there is never going to be like 100% in any direction of, of why yeah. to answer we, why. We love those explanations when it is 100%. Like, incontrovertible proof it's absolutely this way but you know it's a sign that science is being done right when you get something like 50 50 to 60 percent as the answer like that's that 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 is yeah. like the way the world works so it makes sense right let me ask you before we get into in individual animals let me ask you one question about your identity and and what this book has has kind of helped you rethink um i i want to read something you wrote you wrote that uh, a lot of people who identify it, it, it's well, it's in a chapter about trans animals, which we'll get to, but you wrote that a lot of people who identify as 100% gay or lesbian need convincing that bisexuality really exists, claiming that bisexual people are just in a phase or haven't fully come out yet, which makes me chuckle researching this book as it becomes increasingly clear that bisexuality came earlier in the history of life than homo or heterosexuality. And people who identify as 100% gay or lesbian or straight are likely to be underestimating their own bisexuality. So did this book kind of make you rethink like what the baseline is for sexuality or like, and then also how has it, even though you, you still use the gay label, like how has it affected your perception of your own identity? Yeah, there's one, that's a great question. There, there's one scientist I talked to, uh, Beans Velacci, who is, basically studies the history of, of sexuality in, in, in science. Uh, and they had, um, they talked about their own trans identity, that they don't actually, among friends uh, and in close conversation, they don't identify as trans, but they do when they're writing an op-ed or when they're teaching a class or giving a lecture. And that the reason is it's like politically useful. Like it's a way you can really quickly establish your 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 solidarity with a group of people and beans felt close enough to trans people to think like this is this is expedient for me to use this when i want to and then i can change that label depending on who i'm who i'm with i can be a little more down to the the nuts and bolts of who i really am and i, I think of that sometimes with um identifying as gay that it's just it's a you know instead of saying like a kinsey 5.5 right it's like a way to like sort of right. like really quickly like get something established and move on to the point i wanted to make which um unfortunately that happens with so much frequency that it, it leads to this bio erasure uh and you know this will be no new news to most of the listeners of your podcast but you know homosexual didn't exist as a word until the 1890s uh and you know up until then mm -hmm. you could have same sex sex but you couldn't be gay or homosexual like it just didn't it wasn't an identity uh it was just something that someone could do and so when you think about the sort of that's a blip even in the in the the time span of human existence it's a real blip to have the idea of being gay or straight um and those those words are really really new and those the idea of those identities is very very new uh and so you might mm -hmm. have had you know laws against uh, homosexual behaviors, but it wasn't it wasn't an identity state, and I think that's even beyond the ways that animals prove that animals, which obviously don't carry a sense of internalized shame around their their sexual identities, like they they can very freely have um, 
same-sex sexual behaviors and not feel any any reason not to. Uh, but they're also like humans, you know, we are we are we are living in we are the aberration right now in Western culture um, that we think of things in terms of gay and straight. And then if you look at the history of human societies, they would have it wasn't identity based in the same way, which I think was so freeing to think about. Right. I know. I wish we could live in that society or like, uh, I wish I could live with a bunch of bonobos and just like not have to identify and just do, do shit. Um, but yes, uh, you know, we do live in these very politically charged times and because of a lot of homophobia and biphobia of the last hundred years, we sort of have to use these identity labels to combat that. But I, but I does make me think your book that, the the real utopia is like back in back in a labelless world in in some ways uh, if that were possible someday. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you probably know that I'm a big proponent of sex toys. I used to never use them, but. Over the past four, five, six years, I have acquired quite a collection. And I think whatever your sexuality, wherever you are in your journey, whatever your relationship is with sex and with other people or not, sex toys can make all of that more fun and interesting. You can try things you've never tried and see if you like them or not. You can explore dynamics like Dom sub dynamics or kink or fetish play. And so if any of that sounds interesting to you, I think you will love bunnyshop.com. Bunny Shop is not your average adult store. All of their merchandise is carefully curated. Every product at Bunny Shop is handpicked for its top-notch quality, stunning aesthetics, and safety. Whether you're a newbie or a seasoned pro, Bunny Shop caters to everyone. You can discover unique and fun items that suit your desires perfectly or that help you figure out what those desires are. Sometimes these toys can be quite expensive, but whatever your wallet size, Bunny Shop has something for you. From affordable gems to luxury items, they've got your price point covered. And I've already taken a look. They certainly have the luxury items, but they've also got some really affordable items that look great to me. I've been in particular looking through their kink and fetish pages. They've got some really fun bondage stuff, gags, handcuffs, masks, blindfolds, clamps, paddles, whips, crops, sensory items. They have good stuff for couples, some games, some lingerie and other dress up items. Whatever you are interested in, BunnyShop.com has it. Let go of any shyness and embrace your self-love journey with confidence. Save 20% off your order today when you use code 2BUYGUYS, T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S. Visit BunnyShop.com, that's B-U-N-N-Y-S-H-O-P-P-E.com, spelled with two P's and an E at the end, and save 20% off your order. We'll, we'll skip over a few things that I think we'll get back to, such as masturbation. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, but uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about chimps and bonobos, because I that's the part of your book that I ended up quoting in mine. Um, I, actually, a couple parts, but they're the closest animals to humans. They share o- almost 99% of their DNA with us. And yet the two species are pretty opposite in terms of how they're experiencing sex and and using it in their social groups. Um, Can you talk about the sex lives of those two species and how it that could be instructive to understand 
some aspects of human sexuality. Yeah, absolutely. The chimps and bonobos are, are like, it's a fascinating kind of like slam dunk metaphor model for how humans could be like they're <laughs> by far closely the closest animal relatives we have like orangutans and gorillas are way way behind i think it's like 91 or 92 percent dna overlap whereas chimps and bonobos are much much more recent common ancestors with us uh, and yet you have these two very very different societies uh, between the two animals so uh, chimps live in this patriarchal male-dominated culture um, that is very violent uh, and bonobos um, which are tied to chimps their closest relatives, have this matriarchal female-dominated society um, where there is a lot, um, there's no recorded instances of them murdering each other in the ways that chimps will uh, uh, quite frequently kill each other. Um, and the, the origin of this peacefulness of bonobo societies lies in their bisexuality. <laughs> so um, it was long known that, that female bonobos, the most frequent sex between bonobos is between females. Um, that those females are also having sex with males, uh, but they are they are coming together in these sexual alliances. Uh, and you have all these connected, sexually connected mothers. So most of the bonobos are all, always, all the females are raising an offspring, uh, an infant at some, for most of the time. And so you have these mothers with infants having sex with each other, going foraging together, forming this really, really tight society. I think of them as sort of like the pink ladies from Greece. They're like just really a sexually, such a unified group. Um, not uh -huh. that the pink ladies were having sex, but I think they probably were. I think Rizzo was definitely having sex with someone else in, yeah. that, in that group. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but they, um, and so they, they form through this like sexual connection and this, they're incredibly promiscuous as well. They have sex multiple times a day. Um, and that, because basically everyone's having sex with everyone else within this group. They feel close together. They don't have this level of, in, of violence that chimpanzees have. Um, and it's actually interesting. The same primatologist I mentioned before, Christine Webb, uh, really is an expert on chimps. And she feels like our, our conception of chimps as these male-dominated animals has led to us to erase observations of their bisexuality as well. And that now that we are actually looking for uh, homosexual behavior in chimps, it actually, it's, it's, there's a lot more studies coming out, even just in the last two to three years, uh, that there's a lot of, um, of homosexual chimp sex, um, that there was a great paper. Um, I forget the exact title. It came out about a year and a half ago, but it was, um, fellatio as a means for, um, reconciliation among, uh, chimpanzees in Gombe, uh, which is yeah. a place in Tanzania. Uh, so it's like get in a fight, have really hurt feelings, fellatio is a way to sort of get over it and, and come back together uh and that this is a, a strategy yeah. chimps will turn to and obviously <laughs> they're also feeling pretty good in the moment as well so um like of course of course that makes sense like, yes yeah, right it's yeah. not like they're like chimps are the straight animal bonobos are the are the bi animal like chimps are bi too it's just bonobos are really bi and you really can't miss it i spent time at a, a bonobo <laughs> sanctuary in congo uh for about two weeks and the especially the female sex they have these um giant grapefruit size clitorises uh, that they are, are very sensitive and bring them a lot of pleasure, which is it's very clear from the moment you see two females, uh, two female bonobos having sex. Uh, and they will, um, it's called clitoral rubbing. They will have the, that's their preferred form of female, female sex. Uh, and they, they do it a lot. And it's um, judging by the sounds they make, it's uh, rapturous. <laughs> oh God. Do you want to give us an example? No. Um, <laughs> No, I, uh, I, yeah, I found this chapter fascinating and that is interesting that they're finding more by behavior in chimps and, uh, 
and not just for dominance and control. That's that's interesting. You know what what it just made me think of is like you know a I I want to I wish we could all be like bonobos a little more, and uh, like when. I before I came out as queer, I just kind of had this sort of competitive view of sexuality and finding a partner and I'm competing with other people and there's one partner out there for me and I have to find them. And it just like, look, you know, that's just how I thought about the world. And most people around me, I think, thought about dating and it didn't sit well with me. And but I didn't know what other options there were. And then finally exploring sex with men and coming out as queer, it really changed my whole view of humanity in a way. I I felt, I, I like softened up in a way and I felt less competitive with other people. And I felt like, oh, I can experience pleasure with a lot of people in a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to just be in this very limited way that also involves like this concrete goal of like finding a mate it the pleasure can exist just for pleasure's sake but then it did feel like it bonded me to other people in these unexpected ways and and like you wrote about in the book an experiment where when bonobos in, are in, get introduced to a honeypot or like a really sweet treat they all have a big orgy and then they split that treat fairly. Uh, and it, it's just, it makes you see how sex is not just about sex. It's, it's about so much more uh, uh, across, you know, the spectrum of emotion and interpersonal relations. When I, when I get in these arguments um, with uh, people who are, are claiming that, homosexuality is unnatural or bisexuality is unnatural. Like the bonobos are, are, are like the ultimate go-to. Here's an animal that depending on who's in science might actually be even closer to, closer related to us than chimps and that they are as bi as it gets. Like that, that, you know, the, the food distribution example is an amazing one with bonobos. Um, and it's, they, there's such a clear argument to be made about the social benefit that they're all reaping through this um, bisexuality of their of their society um, that it is this this feeling of closeness and unity and we can see it proven by by looking at the outcomes for bonobos versus chimps like bonobos have a great life and chimps have a really rough hard scrabble life uh, and this all this like sort of wonderful unity in the bonobo group is from this sex like so after they you know have a big orgy they're they're full of oxy oxytocin uh, and they're blissed out. And so it's easy to distribute food when you're all feeling great and you're in a great mood. Um, so this post-coital food sharing is like a really great technique that they've come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I think Japanese macaques are another primate uh, that has a lot of same-sex sex. Um, and they're an interesting example to me because bonobos, you have this like story, evolutionary story about why it exists. And it's really incontrovertible. It's, it makes so much sense why bonobos have so much bisexual behavior. The Japanese macaque monkeys, these are the snow monkeys that live in the north of Japan. So you might have seen you know, videos of them. They, they sit, sit in these hot baths and they're surrounded by snow. And it's basically because they're in this one environment uh, and they're all socializing all the time, it's sort of like 90210. Like they are just over socializing and they're just always grooming each other. And who's, who's, um, who's wearing the hierarchy is very important to them. Um, anyway, there's this primatologist, Paul Vasey, who did a, has done a study for decades on a population of macaques, trying to figure out why there's so much 
female-female sex among the macaques. Um, so they're all, like the bonobos, basically bisexual. The males will sometimes have sex. The females will very often have sex. And then there's a lot of heterosexual sex happening as well. Um, and he tried to figure out, took all these theories about why these macaques were having homosexual sex that scientists had come up with. And he was trying to figure out, does, does the data hold? So like one of some theories were that maybe the females were bartering for parental care, which meant, you know, like females were having sex with another female in order to get a babysitter basically for their own offspring, uh, that maybe the um, females were reconciling after fights. That's why they were having this sex. Maybe it was a way to establish dominance. So whoever was higher in the hierarchy would be, be topping the one who was lower in the hierarchy. Uh, my favorite theory that a primatologist had come up with was that the females were staging sexual encounters to excite males. Uh, <laughs> so they were just just a way to get the get male attention. They were like, "You like this, guys? You like this? Come on over." That tells me more about the researcher. Totally, yeah, that- totally. Like you wish, guys. You totally wish that this is the way it worked. Um, anyway, yeah. he he. All those all those theories would predict certain sets of data. So. If it was that they were staging sexual encounters, you would expect there to be a male present when the females had sex, that they would then have sex with the male. Or if it was bartering for parental care, that the females would actually get parental care from this other female. Anyway, he none of the theories helped. None of the explanatory theories about homosexual sex in these macaques held. And he ultimately had to conclude that they're having sex because they want to. Like these, these macaque monkeys, we've <laughs> developed sexual organs for the evolutionary purpose of procreation, like that is, that is, he's not, he's not saying that that, that's not true, but once they have them and these animals have a mind and have the capacity to have desires, two females are sitting next to each other in this, you know, thermal bath surrounded by snow and they have the experience to feel pleasure together with their sexual organs. So they're going to do it. And then maybe it'll be with a male like 10 minutes later, but they're going to do it right now. And they don't, doesn't have to be some grand evolutionary theory for it. Uh, And especially since, a macaque monkey doesn't have to, you know, come out as a lesbian and then like sort of, you know, 10, 10 years later say like, oh, actually I'm bi after all. Like we don't, they don't have that need to like self-identify and that assumption of binariness and certainly no feeling of inherited feeling of shame that their culture has taught them around queer identity. That They'll do it. Like, why wouldn't they? Like they're, they're relaxing in the mm-hmm. afternoon and they'll have sex with each other. It makes you wonder right. how much we've lost as humans by not having access to that. Uh, sort of essential acceptance of a variety of sexual expressions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it also does seem tied to like this this idea that there has to be a reason for everything. That that pleasure isn't enough of a reason. But like, why why not pleasure? I, I I do things for pleasure. Like we all do things for pleasure. And why can't animals do just do things for pleasure? It it speaks to what you talked about earlier about the inner lives of animals that for for a long time, scientists don't really consider their feelings and emotions and things can be pleasurable and we can do that. And I think that's also reflected among humans. Maybe recently there's a bit more of a focus on just pleasure for pleasure's sake, especially in the queer community, but that is not seen as the, the a, a, you know, a good reason for sex by many people in our current world like they're they they also look at it like scientists have looked at animals that you should have sex for a purpose and pleasure is not a good enough reason but it should be i totally agree (laughs) yeah i want to talk about one other uh bisexual animal um which is the dolphins the bottlenose dolphins 
Um, are they just gay sharks? And, uh, you know, can you talk about how, like, how sex works for them and the social structuring and sort of the complex societies they form and, and how sex is involved in forming those? Sure. Yeah. The, I mean, the bonobos are kind of a slam dunk example for why there's this a lot of female-female sex within their group. Uh, and bottlenose dolphins, like the, it's male sex is the rule of the day for the bottlenose dolphins. And bonobos are promiscuous, but bottlenose dolphins are really promiscuous. They have sex on average 2.4 times an hour, these males who are having wow. sex, um, which is just really exhausting to think about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, two point four times a day would be would be a lot. Um, yeah, two point four times an hour. Um, so there was that actually does one seem like great... a lot, even for me. Even for me, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there was one great article uh, about a male male dolphin sex, and it had a picture of two male dolphins having sex. Um, but it said the caption said the um, the owner of the erection was not identified. Like they couldn't tell on this like massive dolphin sex, like whose whose penis it was. Um, well, but, so anyway, so. <laughs> Dolphins, bottomless dolphins are the most common kind of dolphins, and they're one of the few whale species that we've actually been able to study at length because they conduct most of their life in the shallows. So other whales like humpback whales and blue whales conduct most of their uh, sexual lives and most of their lives in the deep, so we don't actually get to see them very often. In fact, no one has ever seen a blue whale or humpback whale having sex, like heterosexual or homosexual sex, like I've just never seen it. Uh, but dolphins and orcas will, will conduct their lives in the shallow, so they're much more studied as far as their, their sexual lives. And bottomless dolphins, uh, the only lasting union, the only lasting uh, partnership in their society is between males. Uh, females will raise their calf, uh, but after a few years have gone by and the calf is, is now an adult, they will part ways and never to see each other again. Uh, whereas these males will form these lifelong unions. Uh, sometimes it's a thruple, uh, often it's just two, two male dolphins. Uh, and it was long known that male friendship is what they called it was the structuring element of dolphin society. Um, but it wasn't until <laughs> 2006 that Janet Mann, who runs a dolphin research site in Australia, uh, published on the mechanism of that friendship, which is this incredibly frequent sex, uh, this 2.4 times an hour. And it's for a similar reason. I mean, the theory is that it's a similar reason as, um, the bonobos, that it produces this oxytocin bonding. And so it's really important for these males to feel incredibly unified, to be like sort of warrior brothers within their society. Like they, they, they know exactly what the other one is thinking and they, they feel they act as one. And sex is the, the easiest mechanism and the most effective mechanism for dolphins to do this. So they will have sex all the time. They'll invite a female in for a couple of weeks uh, and keep mating with her. Uh, and then she will go raise her, once she's pregnant, she'll go and raise her calf with other females or by herself. Uh, but these males will then go on and try to find more females. And they're competing for desirable females. So they're all their really, really frequent homosexual sex is a way to also get an advantage as far as getting the right females that they want for their heterosexual sex. Uh, and this is, you know, happening across dolphin societies across the world, uh, the various dolphin cultures. Uh, and so it's this really... Uh, amazing explanatory um uh, it really helps explain why there'll be this bisexuality within the group uh, that you can see the advantage very clearly and it's got a, a really a really uh -huh. compelling evolutionary explanation how does that last part work where the the having sex with other male dolphins allows them to compete for access to the best female how does that work the males are very aggressive uh, within their groups, uh, and so they are. They will fight each other if they find a, a female who's desirable. They will fight each other to to have access to her. 
uh, and prevent other male dolphins from approaching. So if you have if you have a, a strong dolphin bro <laughs> that you're really close with, together you can sort of fight to get access to the most desirable females. Uh, and so they are they're using their union. And sometimes two couples or two thruples will join together, and these six dolphins will also like find ways to sort of um, compete for the best females and fight fight each other off in order to have access to them. Interesting. I see. I see. Um, I, I thought you wrote, you had a fascinating observation in this chapter that you said that male sexual alliances in dolphins are surprisingly similar to how homosexuality has played out in human history. Can you talk about what you meant by that and like how, you know, the bi erasure of, of that in, in both yeah. human culture and animal research? Yeah, it was really fascinating to think about. So all, all that I described with dolphins is actually really kind of pretty close corollary with something like ancient Greece. Um, yeah, that too. Uh, R.C. Kirkpatrick, yeah, this anthropologist, um, did, a, did a basically a study of what we know about all human cultures over all of human history and found that 65% of them either were really supportive of or, or certainly very tolerant of homosexual behavior within their societies. Uh, and this is all, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago. So you you don't have this sort of homosexual straight um, binary that we have now. You just had bisexual behavior as, as part of the group, uh, part of the way that society worked. Um, so when you think about ancient Greece, um, you know, there was there was female-female sex was happening. We have less record of it because Greeks weren't writing about female lives very much because they were very focused on men. Um, but males were, um, a man would have two really important unions over the, the over his life in ancient Greece, he would have his marriage to a woman, uh, and then also a sexual relationship um, that could change. The partners could change over the course of that that man's life, but a sexual relationship between typically younger and older men, uh, and so those those unions were also political. So it wasn't just you know having sex left and right. It was often like something the families would discuss about. Um, when a, a young Greek man and an older Greek man would would pair up, it was just as talked about and just as important to their society. And it was such an assumed fact of like uh, bisexuality was such an assumed fact of ancient Greece that um, Greeks would actually look suspiciously on a man who was only having sex with women. Um, <laughs> Plato argued that um, that men are attracted to men because of the virility, manly nature of a man. Like what could be more manly than having sex with a man is what Plato argued. Um, and so that if a man is only attracted to women, then he's probably effeminate, right? Like he's just, he's only into girls, right? Because like he doesn't have the manliness inside him. And like, what a like Bring mind-blowing reversal. Yeah, exactly. What a yeah. mind-blowing reversal of like the way that we treat these things now. Um, Seriously. And so it was, it was not just that like bisexuality was accepted in ancient Greece. It was really a foundational part of their society and their culture. Uh, and if the dolphins as well, it's, um, this is this, you know, homosexual behavior, uh, in order to like get heterosexual behavior with the, the, the right female, um, is very similar to the way that ancient Greece worked. Thanks for listening to this episode, everyone. Don't go anywhere. There are still 10 more minutes coming up, but there are also 20 extra minutes of bonus content not available here, which you can only find on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Robert Brooks Cohen. You won't want to miss those extra 20 minutes. We had a fascinating discussion. We talked about animals that defy the gender binary. We don't necessarily call them trans animals because we can't ask them about their identity, but we talked about intersex animals 
and other species that actually transition from male to female or female to male during their life cycle and why that happens and what we can learn from it. And we also talked about animals that are essentially polyamorous or they have sexual or familial bonds that sort of reflect our concept of non-monogamy or polyamory. Those examples are really interesting. That is where the name queer ducks comes from. And we got to talk about those garter snakes. All of that is in the bonus content only on Patreon. Head there to listen. You will be glad you did. Thank you so much to those who have subscribed for supporting my work. And now here is the rest of the episode with Elliot Schrafer. You, t- you mentioned there's about 1,500 animal species that queer behavior or other things have been observed. Uh, and that's probably a lot more than 10 years ago, than 20 years ago. Like scientists are noticing it more lately because they weren't looking for it. And when you don't look for it, you don't notice it. But why has it been so hard? Why is it hard? You wrote about it that it's hard for research that uncovers queerness to be published? Like, what are the obstacles for queer scientists and and how can we overcome that? Yeah. Well, I think think for the most part, it's not nefarious. It is, um, most animals are sexually monomorphic, which means that males and females don't look different to human eyes. So if you think about a pigeon um, or a squirrel, uh, is an animal where you can't just eyeball it and decide if it's male or female. Some are really hard to distinguish, like penguins, where like even you really need a blood test in order to distinguish between the two. There's no way to physically identify if a penguin's male or female because the they don't even they just have a cloaca, like it's all the sexual organs are tucked far away. Um, yeah, we didn't this, even get into penguins. That's another fascinating uh, yeah. chapter, and everyone everyone needs to pick up the book because yeah, that's. There was a lot on that that we couldn't get to today, but it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah a third of all penguins, penguin pairs are, are same sex, uh, and it's this amazing right. you know, same sex partner. And all the stuff about gay penguins that we had heard in the news, like actually, there's it's more, it's even more complicated than that, and many of them were were bisexual. Okay, yeah, go on. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think because they are sexually monomorphic. Um, for the most part, scientists haven't been sexing animals they find having sex in the wild. So you see, you know, a duck on top of another duck. Um, if they're not, if they're of a species where the males and females don't look different, you'll assume the one on top is a male and the one on bottom is a female, and just log it that way and, and not bother to look twice because of this assumption we have around a the naturalness of only heterosexuality in the animal world, and that um, that you know anything that wasn't producing offspring wouldn't wouldn't proliferate so it's it must be heterosexual sex and that Mm -hmm. humans have this wide variety of reasons and that animals don't right that they're only having sex to procreate so put that all together and you have this misidentification of what's going on in the wild Um, there's a great example of a um, scientist in the 1960s who was had pigeons he was raising pigeons and in order to determine if they were male or female he would put two in a cage and saw which one was dominant and which one was submissive and then like log that as a male uh, on top and a female on the bottom um, and then realized you know once they started having offspring and, and laying eggs and it was like oh wait i got all the sexes wrong like or most of the sexes wrong in these pigeons and what actually happened was whichever pigeon was the second one to enter the cage would take the submissive role as a way to communicate i'm not trying to take your territory and whichever one was the original penguin in the cage would take the 
uh, dominant role. Uh, and this could be two females. It could be a female dominating a male. It was just a way of communicating between the pigeons about who's in charge here. Um, and it was really a case where, and those are, you couldn't eyeball it and tell the difference between the two. So, you know, that's a scientist who didn't mean to do queer erasure, uh, but came with assumptions. Science is made by scientists. And this scientist came with assumptions around what was what was going to happen and then found it um, and didn't didn't really have to look twice until all his data was weird when they started laying eggs. Uh, and so I think that's the majority of the cases right now. Um, but there is, you know, examples of scientists who, you know, love their animal that they studied and didn't want to um, spread bad news around the animal or what they consider bad news because of their own homophobia or anti-queer beliefs. So, um, you know, there's a sheep researcher, Valerius Geist, who like basically observed they live in basically homosexual societies for most of the year. The males are in one group having sex with each other, the females are in one group, uh, and that they only come together to rut for a few few weeks out of the year. But he didn't publish on that because he didn't want, you know, as he said later, he, uh, he didn't want people to conceive of these magnificent beasts as queers, uh, and that he just couldn't couldn't put that story out there. It was too it was too awful, uh, and so it was just this homophobia playing out in the way that he was doing his science. And so I think this changing of the guard as far as who's doing science and the kinds of things that they're looking for and this assumption that like we actually do need to figure out if it's a male and a female when they're having sex um, or if it's two males or two females, that they, it might be that this is actually quite prevalent, that we need to start looking. Now that we're looking, we find this explosion of, of research and studies into animals having same sex, sex, that it's much more common than we ever thought. And we only didn't really know about it because we weren't really looking. Hopefully we will look, we, people will be looking more and more and finding it more and more and, uh, and the word will get out there because there's still, even, even as all this research exists and it's here, there's still a disconnect between what most people today believe is happening in the natural world and, and uh, what scientists are uncovering. I am curious, how do you think your own identity development or your life would be different if you'd been aware of queerness in animals from a younger age. Cause you wrote about like wishing you had known all this as a kid. Uh, how do you think that would have changed your life? Hmm. I think there's, um, there's a loneliness to being queer or there can be. And I certainly felt it deeply. I felt I was someone who was unmoored from my my family, my friend groups. As a closeted person, I felt like um, I was living with a secret that no one else had, uh, and I didn't know any other LGBTQ people around me. And that was doubled and magnified by this feeling that I was also isolated and alone from the natural history of animals. That I was also like I was something that had no no referent and no, no past to it, that it was, I was sort of in a, a blip, this anomaly of 1990s um, Clearwater, Florida culture just produced me. And I was just like, oops. <laughs> um, and so that all came together to have a really damaging um, message that I internalized um, that, that I was, I was wrong, not just as a human, I was wrong as an animal as well. Um, and I think uh, not having that internalization would have, sped me along my own journey to self-acceptance um, a lot. Uh, and so I, that's partly why I wrote Queer Docs for Younger Readers uh, is to, um, I, I want adults, most, most of my readers have been adults for the book, uh, but I, I want, uh, my main goal is like those, you know, 
teenagers who feel isolated and wrong and that aren't getting any other stories to tell them otherwise uh, can find out about this growth in science that um, unfortunately biology textbooks are really lagging behind and not haven't caught on to it and haven't caught up yet. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. I feel like, uh, you know, I believed what I was taught in my psychology classes and looking back, it, it feels like I was maybe not intentionally, but kind of gaslit a little. And it caused a lot of confusion um, be- from there was a disconnect of like the way I felt about fluidity and the, at the time, very binary way it was discussed in in textbooks and stuff. And so I think it's great. Your book will be out there and it is great for adults. It's a great read. It's It's so funny and personal. And like you talk about your personal journey in in almost each chapter and how it relates to these things. Um, but it is also super accessible for young people. And so, and there's great little cartoon images of stuff happening and uh, examples of the animals uh, that are just so fun and interesting. And so uh, anyone of all ages will enjoy it. Uh, I really encourage you to pick it up. Last question. I saw you have written a new book called Charming Young Man, that is fiction, I believe. Can you tell us about that and like what else is next for you? What is exciting you these days as a writer? <laughs> yeah, I'm in my uh, queer YA era. Um, I wrote a <laughs> sci- sci-fi novel that with the gay romance at the center called Darkness Outside Us a few years ago, and then Queer Ducks and now Charming Young Man is, is coming out this fall. Uh, it is about a real life figure uh, that I discovered um, who was a young piano prodigy in France in the 1890s uh, and was won the first prize in piano at the age of 13, which was unheard of and was heralded to be like France's next great thing. Um, but he wound up, A, making friends with Marcel Proust, who was a 19-year-old gossip columnist at the time. And they, huh. they, they tried to game their way into high society and try to get into the good salons and the great parties. And um, he, Marcel Proust introduced him to this Count Montesquieu, who was this dandy of French society. And he, Montesquieu became the patron for this young pianist. Anyway, they, it's some falling out. The Count poisoned all the connections he had made for this young man. This is true to history. And then um, uh, he disappeared. Leon, the, the young pianist, disappeared from history at the age of 17. So I'm trying to like recreate his story and what I think happened. Um, and you know, it's a sort of look into sort of gay life in French society in the 1890s and how it would have impacted this teenager who had so much musical potential that he never lived up to. Cool. That sounds awesome. I uh, I have enjoyed your nonfiction work. I can't wait to read some of your fiction. Uh, that sounds awesome. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here today, Elliot. The book is Queer Ducks and Other Animals, The Natural World of Animal Sexuality. We'll put a link in the show notes to his website and the book and everything. Check it out there. And uh yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this the science of queerness is always fascinating to me. And this book really just showed how how much there is to uncover that most people don't know about at the moment and that has is really being uncovered and publicized recently. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all that with us, Elliot Trafer. Thank you so much, Rob. This has really, really been a joy. And thank you for the terrific questions and the conversation that made me grow and think too. It's been really fun. Awesome. I'm glad. Thank you.
Two By Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Mincer. We are supported by the Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Use promo code 2 Guys to get 30% off. Thanks for listening to 2 Guys. <laughs>